This is Take a Second, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that focuses on finding the Savior in the Old Testament, and then how we might teach it in family or ward settings. I'm Brian Ricks, and Stuart Black is joining me to make sure that we stay on the rails. We are recording the podcast from the Student Lounge at the Pocatello Institute, so thanks for joining us for our lunchtime discussion of this week's Come Follow Me Scripture Block. Amos and Obadiah. Amos. Famous Amos. We're getting close. Yeah, we are. Thanksgiving's next week. Um, yeah, we're getting we're getting close. Yes. This has been, I. This hands down has been my favorite gospel doctrine. Uh, like the pacing Old of it. Old Testament. Yeah, I. I just have I just. And and I don't know. There's just something. I'm not sure. I, I look back on it. Like we had way more time in Isaiah, and we talked about that. Mm-hmm. And it feels like we, I know we only spent one day in Daniel, but it feels like we dove into it a little bit deeper, both yeah. not only on the podcast, but also in our ward. Our, our ward gospel doctrine teacher, actually, she did an amazing job mm. with that, with the, the Daniel and uh, the Daniel chapters. And it just feels like, it feels like the Come Follow Me edition of, of the Old Testament has been a home run, at least for me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And uh, just... As part of that, there's always a little bit more of the, I don't know, the prophets you get to dig into, and then you realize a little bit more of their background. You understand who they are, and then you understand, uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's partly because of the podcast, and I, I'm teaching one of the Old Testament classes here, too, that it's uh, so much more of it I've tried to put back into the context of the, the timeline. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that a little bit last week of, all right, put this back in the timeline. When is this happening? What's going on? Who are the kings? Why is this important? Okay, what's going on between Israel and Judah? How is that relationship going between the two countries? And it just makes a bigger difference when you can add it all together. Yeah, I think, and maybe this is one of the mistakes I've made. I don't know that this is necessarily a mistake of the curriculum, but a mistake I've made in past years and why I've enjoyed this more is because I have paid more attention to that. I, to go back and to say, um, hey, what's going on right now? It, you, you get to you get to some of those some of these minor prophets, and then you go back and you say, oh, this is this is back when Isaiah's teaching. And now because we've spent some time diving into that context, I already kind of know what's going on in the days of Amos. Yep. I, I, and and already some of the things he's going to say, I can expect them to sound like some of the other prophets of his time period. Yeah. Because it's the same context. Yep. And, and you understand that it's not as confusing. When you paid that bigger price in Isaiah, yeah. you understand some of the phraseology and some of the object lessons and some of the uh, like other examples that they're using, and you realize that these they're contemporaries. They use that word for a reason, mm-hmm. that they're all contemporaries and together. We, we asked some of the students at the beginning of today, uh, um, dream job and what qualities might come from it. And, yeah, what's your dream job and what might be some qualities that would come because of that dream job? Um... My, where do I look? Right here, right here. Oh, I look at there. <laughs> or you can look at him. Look at me either. If you look at him, it looks a little more cinematic. Uh, my dream job. Um, my dream job is to be a speech and language pathologist. Um, some qualities that might come from that profession is you're a caring, service-oriented individual. Awesome. You. Um, great. Well, since I was a kid, I always wanted to be a pirate, and then it was paleontologist. Then it was a paleontologist pirate. Steal dinosaur bones, um, but I think if I could pick any like a, like any any job like a dream job, I, lately I've been I've been really thinking I should own a lumber yard. You know, import exotic trees and like cut dimensional lumber. Like, it seems like a pretty good deal. Awesome. 
nice nine to five. So qualities that might come your way. What qualities would you, would you get? By doing that, patience, patience, vocabulary. Um, I think uh, business savvy. I think, uh, but I, I think any gospel trait can be learned in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different professions. I would say, like, if I in a perfect universe where money wasn't an issue, I would just be a freelance writer. Oh, um, the qualities, probably like an attention to detail and like an awareness of the world, and a lot of patience and time. And did you know none of them said institute teacher? None of them. Not none of them. one. Your dream job? Taking this off the table. You, could, I, you couldn't be a seminary institute guy. So Steve Packer asked me this one time, and I was like, man, I don't know. Um, Cowboy. <laughs> no. I, uh, I've, I've, there's a couple of them. Um, actually, probably maybe a vet. I considered that deeply when I was I, a little I, guy. Man, I think just your patients would complain a lot less. Um, yeah, they would. I, they might not pay. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't pay as well. I remember in a vet that we used in Saratoga Springs, they had a sign on the door, that, a quote from Will Rogers that said, veterinarians are the best doctors in the world because their patients can't tell them what's wrong and they still have to figure it out. Yeah. Um, that's not the exact quote, but it's something that. So yeah. maybe a vet. Um, I, I toyed with a long time. I toyed with uh, law school and had had acceptance letters to several different places when I finally got told I would get to teach and so we kind of put that put that to rest but we we toyed with that idea for a long time how about you uh that was top of my list right up there for a long time my grandfather was a vet my aunt and uncle are vets they're married and uh they have a veterinary practice in Washington um but uh uh also was the air force I wanted to fly planes fly planes and Blow stuff up. <laughs> yeah, a little Top Gun action. A little Top Gun. Yeah, the mustache fits it right now. Yeah, apparently, it, but. it does. <laughs> um, the, part of the reason we asked that question, wherever that gets inserted, um, I I think that would just be a, an interesting hook uh, or a little readiness thing for your classes. A couple of them are coming in. What are, what are some jobs? Why, why would you be interested in that? And then go look at the two verses here in Amos that describe what Amos did. One of them is Amos 1.1. Um, and then the other one's Amos 7:14, and I'll, I'll just read one of them just because in Amos 7:14 he mentions both of the yeah. two jobs that he had. But uh, it says, "Then answered Amos and sent to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son." I think that's interesting that he doesn't really have a big background or a big like priestly line and family. And some of the other people we've talked about, they have come from priestly lines yeah. and priestly families. But he's like, "I was just a guy, and here's his job, but I was a herdman." And a gatherer of sycamore fruit. It's basically saying I was a shepherd and I, a ranch hand and, and, and a orchard, farmer. Yeah. yeah, I worked in an orchard. And and I would just ask then, what are some of the qualities that Amos would have developed because of the job? There's some there's some qualities that you have before the job starts, and there's other ones that the longer you stay in that job, you become better at that thing. And and just some of the thoughts, he would become very independent. Yep. He would become ec- an excellent observer. He probably would, I don't know about his people skills, what would happen to them, but not as good speaking of veterinarians and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but a lover of nature, simple, big-hearted, caring, that you realize that some of those things that attributes that he would have gotten, and then you put that into this context of who Amos is as a person, and and I just want to relate a couple of things with that. He's from the southern kingdom, and he's called to go to the northern Northern. kingdom. That's like the worst thing in the world, because he's the out-of-town farm kid. 
So you can just, you know, you you can picture how this is going to go. He's from a town called Tekoa, which is like 25 mi miles south of Bethel. And there's two important cities uh, to the kingdom of, of Israel. It's Bethel and Dan. And both those two cities have big golden calves. So when uh, when Jeroboam sets up uh, the worship, he doesn't want anybody going down to the southern no, kingdom No, I anymore. don't want you going to Jerusalem. Because? Because that's where the temple is. And if you, and and where your temple is, that's where your heart's going to be. There you're going to go. And so if we're going to successfully split this kingdom into the northern and the southern, at following, uh, following uh, I almost said Samuel, but following uh, Solomon, if we're gonna, if we're going to split the kingdom, I've got to find something that's going to keep you yes. and your hearts here in our here kingdom. in here in the northern kingdom. And and so Bethel's on the southern end, and then Dan's at the northern end. So there are these two cities, and he sets up two golden calves. Blows my mind they didn't learn the lesson way back yeah. when, <laughs> thousands of years earlier. They they haven't clued into that. Um, but all of that you put into the context of Amos's job as a herdman. These two cities, Bethel, he's from Tekoa. Uh, and then in chapter 3, this is this is just one of the first places I, I, I love what he's teaching and what he's saying here. In chapter 3, verse 14, uh, and, and chapter 4, verse 1, Amos writes this, that in, the, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. That's the city we were just city talking of, yeah. about. So the altars of the golden calf. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So a symbol of horns is power. Yep. And people who enjoy hunting and stuff, now you want to get a big buck because it shows that he's powerful. He's old, that he's strong, like a little little buck is not that fun. A big buck is a lot of fun. And he's saying that the Lord is saying, I will cut off those horns from off the altar, showing your altar will be powerless. Nothing. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. He's calling them cows. And and I had this realization as I was studying it that it, imitation is a form of worship and you are what you worship. And, and I would, I'd, I'd ask questions, I'd dig into that and I'd figure out like, what is that saying about you? What qualities have you gotten because you've worshipped the Lord. If your job is a disciple, what qualities have you gained from that? Who have, who are you becoming? I love that Amos is like, you guys are cows, because that's what you're worshiping. That's all, that's all you want. The attributes of a cow, fine, take them. I, I want those attributes of Jesus. I want love and I want patience. I want I want a forgiving heart. I want to be able to look at others the right way, and and to help them. And I I love this idea of. That's what he's saying, that your imitation is your worship. So look at your worship. How are you becoming different? How are you changing? Yeah, and you could you could even take it a little further, especially with some younger, with like if I was teaching a family with teenagers or, or if I was in a seminary classroom and I had my ninth graders back again, it would be a fantastic conversation to say, as you look around the halls, without being overly, without being judgmental or critical in a negative way, just tell me, how do you know who or what your classmates worship? Like, what does it look like to worship the God of Nike? You know, or the God of LeBron, or, you know, how do you know? We, uh, so I had, when I was a young men's president, we had a young man that lived across the street from us, and he was, like, I've met some Kobe fans in my life, <laughs> but I've never met a Kobe fan like him. And I would watch him, and, 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 
I would watch him out on his out in his driveway, like practicing the shot like Kobe. Like, and he he practiced Kobe's moves. When I was a kid, it was MJ. Yeah. You know, and you would we'd practice that fall away jump shot. Yeah. Um, tongue hanging tongue out. out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Driving to the rack. Yeah. Or uh, you know, me and me and a, a good friend, we we would see we'd. We'd lower it, obviously. But we'd lower that rim a little bit, and we'd see how far back we could jump from and the, still get the dunk. The free throw line dunk. And yeah. you know, we we imitate, we act like, and it's that's that's common. It is just human nature. Mm-hmm. We C.S. Lewis said that it's innate to want to worship things, yeah. and you see that in our behavior in the 21st century, where we may have moved away from false gods of you know golden cows. But we've adopted new gods, and we've we've adopted the gods of the 21st century. And we let that thing then shape who we are. Yeah. And it funnels back that way. And it shapes how we talk. Yes. How, how we dress, the the kinds of movies we go to, the kinds of posters we put on our wall. Um, that is, I I don't think my other I don't think my son listens to this podcast, so I'll throw this out there. <laughs> but he was telling me about a, a YouTuber that he listens to, and and we were talking about it. We were talking about some of this person's past and when I say listen to I mean like fully digest everything this guy puts out and this guy has a questionable past he's it was some questionable behaviors involving drugs and prostitution and things like that and, and I just had and my son's like no no dad I'm not into that but we had the conversation about but so why would you let someone who's okay with that fill your head yeah. Why would you Why would you put yourself in that place where he's the one filling your head? And I think that's part of what this is, and that's part of why Jeroboam sets it up the way he does. If you go to Jerusalem, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna still be Jews, or you're gonna still be a united Israel mm-hmm. until I can get you worshiping something else. Because it's fascinating. He doesn't just he could have just set up another art another temple, but he changed. Why not it just set up Solomon's temple? Why not yeah. make a replica? And do it exactly like Solomon. It's because I don't want you worshiping what they're worshiping in the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so cool. And then you relate that to five verse eight, and and Amos says, "Seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, that turneth the shadow of death into the morning." He says, "Who cares about cows? You made it. Try making a star or a constellation like Orion, who can change death into morning." And not morning, that crying morning. The morning here, this is daylight. Sun coming up. The sun coming up. And, and this just this just screams the Savior right yeah. here to, to help you understand. And you talk, we talked about at the beginning that drawing this back to, pre, to other prophets who are speaking at the same time, what's Isaiah saying to the people in Israel or down in, down in Jerusalem? You worship the work of, hand, of man. Mm-hmm. The people who made this that you're worshiping, they're going to die. They're as temporal as the thing they made. Why would you worship that when you know it's temporary, when you could worship the eternal? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Love that. Um, So we talked about him being a shepherd, and I love the questions in chapter 3. Amos sets up these, these hypothetical questions, these rhetorical questions, not hypothetical, these rhetorical questions, and he's, he's trying to prove a point about the fact that with regard to prophets. Uh, I don't know. You remember President Ballard's invitation years ago for seminary institute teachers to... Um, gospel topics? 
Yeah, to, to digest the gospel topics, to know what people will read. Hand. Yes. Yes. And so I, that that summer, I don't remember. I think I had just finished the PhD, and 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 I, for the, maybe the first one, maybe the first summer in years, I wasn't Some free like, study time. I, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> inundated with grad school. And uh, so I took that to heart, and I really dove in, and I called friends that I had been close to that had left the church, and uh, asked them, I said, what podcasts are you listening to, what books are you reading, what websites are you going to, and uh, and I, I really took that to heart, and I, I studied those things ne- with the gospel topic essays next to them, and, and I made a whole summer of it, and at one point, my wife came to me and asked me, and she said, she spent the whole summer worrying I was going to leave the church, <laughs> just <laughs> waiting for the day I would come home and announce that I was taking off my garments and never going back. And, uh, and it never happened. And one day we were having a conversation, and she said, why? Like, why is it that some people can study and these things tear them away from, you know, they've been members of the church for 50 years. And, and you've had, we've had, I think everybody that's listening has had family or friends that were these spiritual stalwarts that you've had spiritual conversations with and now they're leaving the church because they came across, across something. Yeah. And and so we were talking about that and I, I can't speak as to why other people leave and I didn't. I can speak as to why I didn't though. Um, as I read all of those things and I, I made it my, I gave my best effort to read as much and as widely as I could so that there wouldn't, so that I would be aware of what was out there. And, but the thing I kept coming back to was prophets. Like, I, there was no question in my mind that Jesus Christ is the most important piece of our testimony. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is at the, it's the hub of everything. But, but for me, as I went through that, it was my testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith and of prophets in general. At that time of, pro, of President, President Monson. And I, I love these, these rhetorical questions. First, verse 3, in chapter 3, Amos says... Can two walk together except they be agreed? He's just spent, the, the Lord has just spent chapter one and chapter two pointing out all of these people that they're not agreed. Mm-hmm. Because of your transgressions, we're on different pages. And so Amos starts and says, look, can two people walk doesn't together? Doesn't that connect with worship too? You are, Absolutely. you are agreeing, like you are the same. You worship cows, then you're a cow. Yep. If you worship God, what does that say about you? Who are you really? I, I love that. Anyway, you are with you, you're walking you are with, and that's with who you're becoming. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so there's that first question where he draws it very clearly. Like that's an easy one. The, that, that question's easy. The next one's not so much. Verse four: Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have not, if he if he have taken nothing? In other words, are the lions going to make any noise if there's no reason to make the noise? And then he says, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no jinn is for him? Uh, the idea, or sh- the next one, remember just like with Isaiah, these are, it's his poetry. And so this is, while the words may not rhyme, the ideas rhyme. So is a bird going to fall in a snare or shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? If you don't put any bait in the snare, a bird's not going to come and just happen to fall into the snare. Right. You don't. You don't. You have to bait it, and then verse uh, five. And or you sorry, won't pick up a snare if there's nothing yeah, in it. Yeah, You're there's no leave reason. It alone. There's leave it alone. Yes. Yeah. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? And and then shall there not be an evil city and the Lord hath not done it? This idea that and the Lord there's a cause and effect in everything. The, the Lord doesn't do false alarms. 
And the very next verse then, verse 7, I think maybe without question, one of at least the two most famous verses from this book. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And I think to me, this Amos is saying, God's called a whole bunch of prophets. It's not just me. We've got Isaiah down in Jerusalem. We've got, we've got all of these prophets who are speaking and teaching. And God doesn't blow false alarms. If God's called a prophet, there's a reason. Um, it reminds me of Doctrine and Covenant section 1 when the Lord says, Knowing the calamities that would fall upon the children of men, I call the prophet. That's, um, that's why God calls prophets. We talked about the horns and cutting the horns off, and, and you think about the role of antlers or horns in the wild, it, rec- it, it symbolizes power and establishes a hierarchy mm-hmm. within defense, the herd. Yes. And it's, a, it's about defense and protection and, and mag- you know, who, gets, who, who gets to breed and who doesn't. And, yeah. and this idea that these horns are for protection. And when you cut off your horns, and you think about the big longhorn Texas cows, there are bulls that... That those people, that those guys drove to the north. I, I there's a as you go down south, as you head south on I-15, just as you come out of Tremont, there's a there's a herd of Longhorns. Have you seen them? Yeah, not that I remember now. That okay, so that. just as you turn and you, 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 you I-15 turns and merges with stuff, right? Just past, it's right after you know when as you're coming from Pocatello, uh-huh. I-15 turns and merges with is it 86? Like 86 or whatever, 84. It's right at that yeah. point when they're merging, yeah. and that big loop. Look to the west, and there's a there's a herd of longhorns, and those horns are impressive. Hmm. And the thought, even being on a horse, I would be like, I don't want to mess with that. <laughs> um, and but our protection, the bulls of our herd, it's it's President Nelson, and and when we when we. When we find ourselves within the herd, we get the protection of the herd bull. Yeah. And that's and and ultimately that's Jehovah. And and there are these others who he's given the priesthood authority to and these priesthood keys to who have the protection to protect to, to who have the power to protect us. In verse 8 then he says the Lord Isaiah is now going to go back. He says the lion hath roared who will not fear. And you think about him being a shepherd and I wonder how many nights he'd been out with his shepherds and, 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 and pit, or out with his flock and hears a lion roar. Like he knows what he's talking about. This is, this, I am yeah. convinced this is his experience. Yeah. He knows when lions roar, it's not just because. They may stretch and they may growl and they may do other things, but when they roar, something's about to happen. Yeah. And, and when the Lord calls prophets... When the Lord calls the prophet Joseph Smith, something's about to happen. Yeah, I love that. I, that that idea of the role of the prophet here in Amos is, is so critical. There's, uh, I, I want to come back to something in chapter two in a second, but in uh, in chapter seven, um, you have this, uh, uh, and I got some of these ideas. I was studying this. Uh, Josh Steers. Uh, in the Sydney Sympo- uh, Sperry Symposium uh, book, 46th Annual one. Anyways, he uh, he shared some of these in uh, chapter 7. Um, he talks about how in verses 1 to 6 that Amos 
Amos joins Elite Company with Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, others in this idea called prophetic intercession. And it's the times where the prophet is interceding for the people. Mm -hmm. And most of the time in the scriptures, we talk about how God intercedes for his people or about how, the, how Jesus Christ intercedes uh, for us at the, at the throne of God, whatever it is. But in this case, it's the prophet who's speaking up for the people. And it seems kind of backwards. And it, it's this idea where it's a flow or a give, of ta give and take of ideas. And uh, you see this in verse 2. This is chapter 7. They came to pass when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. It says, the Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Now, repented, there's a, there's a Joseph Smith translation that says, Jacob will repent for this. Uh, but this idea is also relented. The Lord relented and said, fine. I know Jacob is small, and I know they're young, and I know that they've struggled with a lot of things, so I'll, I'll let it go. And then it's talking about a great fire, and it's devouring part of the deep. In verse 5, Amos speaks up again and says, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise, for he's small? It's the same thing. And the Lord repented for this, relented. This also shall not be, saith the Lord. And the idea behind this, sometimes when we read these verses, we're like, God's being the mean one in this story. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes that, that worries people or bothers people. And um, I, I wrote down a couple of my ideas here, and, and it just says this, that um, we, if we fly to either extreme, we run into problems. One of the extremes is this. Do we condemn Jehovah as a vengeful God? Or do we go to the other side? We have to apologize for God, and we're like, well, people deserve what they got. That makes us seem mean. Yeah. We're like, well, they deserve what they get. Yeah. And and here's here's a third suggestion, an idea. If God only cared about prosecuting the people, then why even have the conversation? Yeah. Why call a prophet in the first place? Because if he's already got his mind made up, or if he, why even talk? And and it just, I, I came to this conclusion. It seems that God's original intention is to have the conversation with his prophets as it shows the, the paradox. Now, paradox is a complicated thing that looks like it doesn't fit until it does. Mm -hmm. And he says that how can God be just and merciful? That's the paradox that he is. That's the beautiful part of the gospel is that he's both of those things. And, and in the case of Abraham, it, if God just said, fine, find 10 good people in Sodom and Gomorrah and I'll let it go. He said, then that loses that poetic vision of God saying, I'll be merciful again and again and again and again. For 11 straight verses, he's saying, I'll give you mercy if you find that. I'll give you mercy if you find that. I'll give you mercy if you find that. And all of a sudden, you learn more about Jesus that he wants to give mercy. You're like, what about 45? He's like, sure. What about 40? Okay. Well, what other number do you want? Keep yeah. going. Keep, yep. and, and you realize again and again, like, he's still going to be patient with me. He's still going to be merciful with me. And I love this idea here. And, and at the end of the story, that uh, um, the, the penalty isn't with God for, for acting or the, for the prophet for not saying what he needs to do. The penalty falls to the people. And, and you're building a house right now in, in uh, verse 8. We were tiling. Yeah, you can see all the work. The grout will come off. Uh, he says, I'll set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. Mm -hmm. And a plumb line, when you're building walls, you drop the plumb line and you make sure like, okay, this wall isn't tilting this way or this way, that it's going to be flush, that you're doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. And he says, the reason I'm giving this is I'm making a plumb line for Israel. So if you were teaching this, you could show somebody that. You could bring a couple of tools. You could ask somebody to demonstrate. How do you make this wall straight? Well, here's the plumb line. What do you do? And and help them understand God wants all of us to walk that way. Yep. And and this, this idea, I love this plumb line because usually it's for walls. When the wall goes up, 
and you realize like my path that I'm walking isn't just forward, I'm up. I'm going to God, and He's setting this structure for me, and and this idea of mercy and everything else. And those are some of my favorite verses here in chapter seven. So I got really excited about the the idea of a plumb line, and it brought about actually a really painful experience because <laughs> the first thing we built on our uh, on our property when we moved out before we could get the construction loan to build the house is I built uh, I built a dog shed, and I got teased terribly because I built a house for my dogs before I did for my kids. Um, but it was, it didn't require a construction loan. So, but we just did it. I just, I, I'm not a framer. I, you know, if I, if I, if I claim, lay claim on anything in the construction world, it's as an electrician. Uh, but I'm, I'm also not afraid to just jump in and go, which it really bit me in the rear. So we got, uh, we got the building stood and we got the trusses put on. And then it was time to sheetrock. <laughs> I mean, I was. Then you realized. I was losing that. Yeah, that's when I realized. Oh, I should have used a level every now and then. <laughs> so I just, I think it would be cool to bring in all of the tools, like, because you mentioned a plumb line, but what other tools does a carpenter have that are meant to keep his building square? Yeah. To keep things straight, I, you could bring in a tape measure. Mm-hmm. And talk about measuring things. Why is it important? Why are measurements important? Yeah. You could bring in the square. Speed square, yeah. The speed square. You could bring in the big sheetrock square. You could bring in levels, torpedo levels, big four-foot levels. You could bring in all of these tools of the of the building trade and say, why is why are builders so obsessed with keeping things straight? Mm-hmm. And what does that have to do with us? Yeah. Why like. What does that have to do? What does it mean to have a square life or to keep my life square to the things of the Lord? Yeah. And, and this idea of measuring and why is, why is it important that we measure these things? Um, you know, the, my obedience and, and keep track. Uh, it's building something is exact. Building a building is an exact. It is an exact science, I've learned. Um, it's way less art. Experience. It's way less art. Good than thing you practiced on the doghouse, oh, though. My brother yeah. and I used to tell me when we built my basement, he's like, I'm glad we're doing yours first. And my yeah. That's something to tell people from now on when they rasp me. I'm like, hey, I took, I made all the mistakes on the, um, except I'm still making plenty of mistakes on the big house. But um, I just, I, we're not building a house. God's not building a house with us. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to pull this back to the idea of a prophet is there are people today who would have a prophet. In fact, in, in the story, there's, you know, as is it Azariah who says to Amaziah. Amaziah. Yeah, it's here in seven. Um, when he said, oh, it's back. right after yeah, that. Yeah. So Amos says, look, I'll set a plumb line. The Lord, the Lord says, I'll set a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. And the plumb line is the prophet. Mm-hmm. Amos, I'm setting you in the midst and you'd better stay square. Mm-hmm. Well, the very next thing is, okay, let's, he prophesies something bad about the king. Well, Amaziah comes back to him and says, hey, go prophesy somewhere else. Go back to Tekoa. Go to the go southern kingdom. Go where you're from. Yes. Go, just leave. But he said, and then he says, but prophesy not again anymore at Bethel. For it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. And then verse 14, then Amos said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. And this is what you read before. Like, I, this isn't what I chose. I didn't pick this. The word, the name Amos means burden. Mm. This is my burden. This is my call. And almost like Jacob at the temple, I'm sure Amos would have loved to have gone back and taught, it, you know, in his home and been able to sleep in his own bed. And but that's not what his call was. 
And so this idea, and I think in our day, there are people who would, who, who say to the prophets, change your message. You're too harsh. You're too mean. You're too, you're not, you're not tolerant enough or you're too tolerant. Some people are like, you're too tolerant. You're, you're embracing, you know, with, I don't want to stir up too much, but you know, whether it's, whether it's certain demographics or with certain political policies, it, it was like for the last couple of years, president Nelson couldn't win for losing. Yeah. He was being criticized from both sides, and people were saying, change the plumb line. Shift your level. I, at one point in building our house, there, we needed to change our level because I wanted to, I wanted, I didn't want the, I wanted to measure the slope on my uh, drain lines. Mm -hmm. And so we added a block. It was my dad's idea. He added a block at the end of a four foot level. Um, for every foot, you needed a quarter of an inch drop. And so we added a one inch block at the end of a four foot level. And then if we stuck that on the thing, and, and to a, now we had a purpose for doing that, but I think sometimes that's what people want. We want the prophets to change the rules or change the message, shift the plumb line. Yeah. They, they want us to be, they want us to be okay with it, with a crooked building. And, and don't you love that in building, there's just one way? That, that and I'm not talking about every house looks the exact same, but every level means level mm -hmm. and plumb means plumb. And, and the Lord, as he gives those expectations, he still is showing mercy when he says, how can they arise? They're small. They're, they're struggling. They need help. And he's like, I'll help them. Yeah. I'm, I'm right here. In both cases, the refusal or the, the problem is with the people not acting, not with the prophet for the message mm -hmm. and not for God for holding high standards. It's, it's the people. Yeah. And, and so at the end of all of this book of Amos, it, it's on us to act. Um, you want to go I, back to two? I, yeah, I just, I, this is probably my, my final thought. The big, the big thing that I love probably um, uh, of, of Amos the most is this verse. Um, it was one I stumbled on this summer. Uh, but in chapter 2, verse 13, um, it's the Lord. And he's saying, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. And uh, if I were teaching this in a gospel doctrine class or something, I would just say, what are you visualizing? As you read that verse, what, what are you seeing? What's happening? And for me, I, I just imagine Jesus being pressed in Gethsemane, meaning the place of the olive press. And you have this idea now of Jesus being pressed for the iniquity of his people. He's saying, I am being crushed as a cart because of you. That all of these decisions that you made in chapter one for three and for four, for three and for four, he repeats this, this same thing, all these transgressions from all of these cities surrounding um, Bethel, that he just says, I'm crushed because of you, because you're unwilling to change. And, and I think when I try and put ourselves in the Savior's shoes and realize, why is he calling these prophets? Why does he want exactness for me? Because he understands the pain of sin and, and of a life being not in line with the Father's. And he also understands the feel, full joy of having a life perfectly in line with God's. And uh, I, I tremble and I'm very humbled in very moment, in a lot of moments when I consider the pressing that I put upon Jesus. And as I visualize this cart, I also visualize this slow, heavy cart hauling off my burdens. That Jesus is taking them away from me, and that is something that I'm always grateful for and humbled by. I, the, that is kind of the end piece to where I, I, I've got a couple of 
I've got a couple of sneaker heads for kids that have more shoes than I. I have two kids right now that probably own more shoes right now at this moment than I've owned in my entire <laughs> life combined. Um, but I'm fascinated. Verse 6, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. And you jump over to verse 10. And it said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to the possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. You were the oppressed. You, when I found you in Egypt, you were the poor. And you were the ones that were getting walked on and that weren't worth anything in the eyes of those that oppressed you. And now you're the ones doing the oppressing. I and, and I think part of the the weight, I, I think it'd be and and athletes would understand this and uh, I think musicians would understand this. This idea that one of the worst words in the English dictionary is the word potential. Like as an athlete, I never wanted to say I, I never wanted to be the guy that had potential. Mm-hmm. Because all that means is I'm not good you didn't yet. Feel it. <laughs> <laughs> um and I think that's the word that describes Israel right now. You had so much potential because of all of my children, you should have been the empathetic ones. You should have been the ones that never allowed the poor to go hungry. You should have been the ones that never, ever let someone go without clothes or, you know, whatever, whatever thing they were, whatever material thing they were lacking because you've, you've been there. And, and, the Lord saying, I, I brought you out of Egypt and I pulled you out of that situation because like Alma at the, the hill of Oneida, I thought that because of that situation, I could then turn you into prophets and Nazarites. But instead, you told the prophets not to preach and you gave the Nazarites wine. You broke your covenants. And then the Lord says, I'm pressed. Crushed. I'm, it, I had so much. I, 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 I really hoped that it would be different, and maybe that's the wrong phrase. I don't think the Lord is surprised at this, but the fact that they have become the oppressors is is a heavy burden for the Lord, and it's and, and that I think is why that is one of the things why the Lord I think in Doctrine and Covenants says of him who's given much, much is required. And so, back to Amos in, th- in 2.6, the punishment will not turn away. I mean, it's too late. It's going to happen. Yeah. And, But I've sent a prophet because it's never too late, ultimately. Yeah, and, and that, that to me is a big walk away from with Amos, is that they have all these struggles, right? And, the, and all these minor prophets are pretty like similar. They, here's all struggles. the struggles. And, and the Lord has still called a prophet for him. Mm-hmm. And it shows to me, again, what are, who are you really worshiping? What are you learning about Jesus? Yeah. And he doesn't quit on you. I, while people are fighting, while people get frustrated with the prophets and they get frustrated with something that a President Oak says or a President Nelson says or you know something that Elder Holland said or didn't say or they take something, the, the great, I, I don't know if it's an irony, ever since Alanis Morissette's song, I've not ever really been comfortable with whether I know what irony is or not. Um, the great irony is, is we get so frustrated with the prophets, and yet the prophets might be, in my opinion, 
prophets are the greatest next to Christ. They are the Lord. They are God's. They're the sign of God's love. Like God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son and nothing comes close to that. Like there's not even, nobody, nothing even approaches that. But God continues to send servants. Just like in the parable in Matthew 25, God continues to send servants into the streets to call his children to the, to the party. Um, and those servants, those invitations are a sign of his love. Absolutely. Well, great place to end. That's another one in the books. Obadiah, it's a good one. You should check it out, especially the very last verse. I like that one. Yeah. See you next week. Well, thanks again for joining us on Take a Second for Come Follow Me. Brother Black and myself want to emphasize that in this episode or any other episode, there's nothing that we've said that is meant to or can in any way be interpreted as the official doctrine or policy or practice of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Brother Black and myself simply represent two guys that enjoy talking about Scripture and and in our own life experiences as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and hope that in sharing some of our thoughts and, and insights, but certainly our personal opinions and nothing more, that uh, maybe it might open up the scriptures a little bit to you. So thanks again for joining us on Take a Second, and we will see you in our next episode.